Welcome to another episode of Commentary. This episode was recorded in 2003 for the release of McSweeney's issue number 11 DVD. Our guest today is Francis Ford Coppola. McSweeney's is a publishing company, a humor website, and a literary journal with short stories, reportage, and illustrations. And this featurette is from the DVD that accompanied the release of issue number 11 in 2003. While Francis Coppola provides the commentary for this satirical behind-the-scenes documentary called The Making of McSweeney's Issue Number 11 DVD, featuring Joyce Carol Oates playing GameCube and interns talking about how writers like their coffee, he's not the director, just a director that they picked to speak over the images in this piece. And the joke here is that he's never seen this documentary before. He wasn't involved in the making of it at all and does not come across like he knows any of these people or knows what this movie is about at all. That as a result, he goes off on several tangents talking about film theory, providing some random stories of his own life and of his experience in filmmaking, and talking about articles he's read on brain chemistry, fear, and consciousness all while trying to guess what's happening on screen. Since this is an absurdist piece, it doesn't matter whether you're watching the images that Mr. Coppola is watching at all, and as such, this is a 5 out of 5 on the listenable scale. I'm not sure you can stream this at home, but on the off chance that you find it somewhere online, you can sync this commentary at the beginning of the piece by clicking play when you hear this sound. Here is Francis Ford Coppola in 2003 for The Making of McSweeney's Issue Number 11 DVD. Hello, I'm Francis Coppola, and I'm going to be providing a director's commentary for some of the deleted scenes. Well, my thought about uh, this, I'm, I'm certainly a director, and consequently my commentary might be a director's commentary, although at this point I'm not sure I have much to say. Uh, I'm, I don't know the people I'm watching, and it's a very high angle going down on a book, um, I hope they know what they're doing. I don't know what film exactly they're making, and I can't read the title of any of the books that were on the bookshelves. I see that this gentleman is, um, has a microphone, so I assume he's saying something of great interest. Speaking of that, necessarily, if someone is speaking into a camera and it's being recorded, uh, does that mean that it might be of great interest? I'm not so sure. Now uh, we're looking at the making of this particular edition of uh, McSweeney's, and um, we ha here we have another director giving a commentary, so I presume I'm giving the director's commentary on the director's commentary. Uh, I'm not quite sure what he's talking about because I can't quite hear him, but he's certainly uh, expressive, and his, I see his hands, which is refreshing, because so often in film or in movies they cut the shot so high that you don't see their hands. I know they really do this so that the editor doesn't have any matching problems when he's editing it, and that's why even if you go to a major movie today, a big budget movie, you'll notice in the first five minutes you're in these enormous close shots. I have my theory on this. Um, I believe the reason in regular movies that you're in these enormous close shots are, are two. One is the fact that since at the end of every day of production, the director is supposed to send back to the studio how many setups or shots he got. And uh, if while they're doing a normal shot, uh, someone always suggests, well, let's move in and get a big close-up because it's easy and quick to do. And then at the end of the day, instead of having 
17 shots and getting credit for having done 17 setups, you'll get the credit for doing 21, which looks better, but in fact, uh, four or five of them were just big close-ups. But that means that the close-ups exist, and then when the editor goes to edit the scene, since usually everything is mismatched, which is to say that they're picking up the salt and pepper shakers or taking the glass down or up or the pencil is in the hand or what have you, since that's always usually very, very, very inconsistent, what happens is that the, the editor will just choose the extreme close-up so that they don't have to worry about where the hands are and where the pencils are and where the glasses are. And that's my theory, my personal theory as to why in movies today the close shot, which was invented for and reserved for moments of great uh, impact uh, or emotional content, uh, are now used throughout the entire movie, which is, of course, uh, a very boring thing to do. Um, they are now talking in this, um, in this room about uh, their film that they've worked on. I think this is still the director. As you see, you see his hands, which is, uh, I've heard it said that the hands represent uh, about a third of the face, which is to say if you don't see the hands, it's the same as only seeing uh, on this shot. We have the hands, and so we see more of the expressiveness and the gesticulation of the of the person. Uh, um, Samantha Hunt, I don't know Samantha Hunt. She seems like a very nice young woman. I would like to know Samantha Hunt. If my commentary is, who is Samantha Hunt and what area of expertise does she have in the mix and why is she being hidden by the elbow of this fellow? There I am. I said how important the hands were and now they're blocking out the face of Samantha Hunt, which is sort of disturbing. But we see she has a guitar on the wall. Oh, here's another young lady. I don't think this is the same, uh, Samantha Hunt. My grandfather, very interestingly, had a total uh, fascination, I could even say a fetish for women with eyeglasses. It goes back in our family that whenever he saw a woman with eyeglasses, he became incredibly attracted to her because he thought she was very intelligent. Uh, I guess in those days only librarians and students wore glasses, but and there were no contact lenses. But my grandfather was totally susceptible to young ladies with glasses, and uh, his life is, uh, you could say, marred uh, with any number of in, in, in incidents involving ladies with glasses who had irate husbands, who had knives, and the story uh, of this grandfather is is very colorful. As a young man, he was known as Il Balcone, which meant the balcony. And this is because in the town he came from in southern Italy, he would swing into the balcony to be with usually the maid or the housekeeper of a particular household. The story is that once he swung in through the balcony and ended up in the wrong room, and he ended up with the lady of the house, and it caused an incredible scandal in the town. He got the name Il Balcone and promptly had to leave town. So he came to the United States of America, and but but for that dangerous misstep, swinging into the wrong room, I might not have been born. Um, here we have Andrew Leland. He is an intern. Uh, I presume this means he does not get paid, uh, but performs all sorts of very worthwhile services. Uh, interns really make a lot of creative activities possible because of the fact that they are so helpful and they do so much and they don't require an enormous uh, payment of a salary or the various benefits or health insurance and all these things that uh, make, uh, make getting one employee such a difficult thing to do, especially on an enterprise that is not 
otherwise subsidized by um, a bigger company. Or I see here they're playing video games. I myself have never been too terribly interested in video games. Perhaps it's partly because making a modern motion picture is sort of, in a way, like a video game. I mean, certainly you edit it electronically and you control exactly what image you go to or how you choose to structure it. So uh, for some reason, I've never gravitated to the, the video uh, game at all whatsoever. Um, it doesn't really look like there's much going on in this particular selection of these deleted scenes. Perhaps that's why they are, in fact, deleted scenes. My impression is that uh, in movies that you see uh, when uh, you have the option on the DVD extras to see deleted scenes or scenes that were removed, that there were good reasons why those scenes were removed and having them on the DVD to look at only sort of backs you up and undoes the decision of taking them out in the first place. Although sometimes they're taken out by people other than the director who felt that the film was too long or the project was too long. And in that case, it might have some value to allow audiences to, uh, to see those deleted scenes. Um, this young man reminds me of my older brother, August, when he was uh, about 17 or 18. Uh, he was a very, very sweet older brother, always included me in things. And so I always think of him very fondly uh, whenever I see anyone whom I think looks like him. Now, uh, this is another young lady. She seems to be wearing a towel. And indeed, she has eyeglasses. Uh, she may very well be a... Um, a oh, here's another young lady, Heidi Meredith, who is a... Uh, uh, glass, eyeglass wearer. My grandfather would be crazy about these girls, uh, but uh, actually he had passed away at a very young age due to a life of uh, a tremendous overindulging of every possible nature, and so he's not with us here to, to uh, see and, and be consequently uh, inflamed by any of these young ladies with glasses. Uh, I do wonder what the towel signifies. Uh, whether or not there's some sort of Roman theme. Uh, but no, uh, in fact, uh, it now looks like there's a sort of farmer theme, uh, given the straw hat of this gentleman. He is talking about um, uh, something. He, too, has eyeglasses, though I absolutely do not think my grandfather would be in any way uh, interested uh, in the way that he was of the various uh, young ladies who did wear eyeglasses that he saw. Um, uh, this deleted scene is uh, of a young man, uh, a nice young man. He, he um, seems very earnest, and, and this young lady is especially nice, has a beautiful uh, smile, and uh, seems to be like a very nice young lady. Uh, what I wonder what her name is. I, I haven't seen the uh, title superimposition, so I am at a loss to know who she is. I will probably never, ever meet her again, though, of course, I would like to. Um, this deleted scene, ah, yes, this is Dave Edgers, who is pontificating to his group of interns and production assistants. I'm sure he's saying something very, very interesting regarding the uh, publishing of the, uh, of the magazine. Uh, and now I think I even recognize this gentleman uh, as being in charge of the DVD and uh, some of these audiovisual uh, components. It's always interesting, the young men in high school college who were interested in audiovisual, they always seemed to have the keys to everything and they were, had the access to all of this equipment which often they took home. Uh, I always wished that I could be one of those audiovisual guys so I could have the keys and I could have all that free equipment. 
Um, and when I did go to college, I had a similar position in the theater department in that I had all the keys for the theater and the shop because I often worked throughout the night building the scenery. And, and I, I found that having all those keys uh, did give me access uh, to, to various facilities that uh, would not otherwise be mine. Here she is uh, clearly uh, a young lady, perhaps of the Muslim faith, I'm not sure, or either that she's enacting some uh, maritime story, perhaps Nathaniel Hawthorne or, or Herman Melville or some uh, American author, uh, or perhaps Irish, perhaps John Millington Singh, uh, Riders to the Sea, or some, something that requires uh, such a lantern to signal. Ah, yes, there she is again. Uh, uh, I wonder what her position at the uh, at the magazine is. This fellow looks like he could conceivably be Italian, uh, like be a cousin or a relative of mine. Um, I um, uh, I don't know what this young man is talking about, but uh, again, he seems earnest and uh, definitely whatever he's saying, I do believe that he believes it. Um, it's difficult to have a director's commentary of. Uh, something that you are not technically the director of, uh, nor do you exactly know the subject of their discussion, but uh, we have here what's referred to as talking heads. These heads are talking, uh, but we do not know what they're saying, and so consequently it could be some, oh, he's indicating a shiver, which could indicate very, very low temperature or perhaps some fear. An interesting thing about fear, I was reading recently that Whereas we normally think that uh, the emotion of fear causes all these bodily responses of, uh, you know, the increased heart rate and the adrenaline being pumped in and generally the, the body uh, reacting in a specific way. Uh, this particular piece was saying how, for example, if a tiger were to jump in your path, uh, your body would immediately adjust, you would immediately be shooting adrenaline and otherwise uh, hormonal, chemical, and physical heart rate going up and what have you. And then that's what you read as fear, that the physical change in your body actually comes before the emotion, and in fact is the emotion, is how you identify uh, that complexity of uh, of biological reactions, uh, nature has provided us with an easy way to know, like get away from that tiger very quickly, although you think you would know that in any event, but nonetheless we need the mechanism of fear to uh, help us uh, uh, react quickly. Uh, this made me think of an interesting thought, which is since the human brain is no doubt a form of a computer, uh, and since it works perhaps on a molecular level or an organic level, so it's a kind of uh, uh, organic computer or biological computer. But still, since all those cells in the brain are also made of uh, uh, particles, atoms, and, and uh, subatomic atoms, that perhaps the human brain is also really a quantum computer as well. Uh, or, or which would mean that the human brain is capable of a level, uh, uh, an immensity of computations so enormous as to be uh, exponentially way beyond what any computer really that we presently have manufactured could ever be. Now, if that were the case, if we are really walking around with what is essentially a, a quantum mechanical computer in our heads, and if you assume that the body is producing an enormous number of little uh, inputs based on chemistry and uh, 
uh, electrical currents and various functions of various organs and cells that this computer is attached to, that would mean that our brain is capable of basically doing lightning fast uh, computations of such an enormous amount of factors that perhaps it's that complexity itself that is what we call consciousness. I've often wondered what consciousness was. I, I, I suppose these young people talking uh, feel confident that they know what consciousness is since they are, uh, they are uh, discussing th interesting things and no doubt have a sense behind their eyes of who they are and what the consciousness process is. But if you really try to think and understand what consciousness is, it becomes tricky. Uh, just like if you were to explain what water is to someone who didn't know what water is, you could just stick their hand in it and maybe they would know it. But uh, whereas we all know what our consciousness is because we experience it and uh, we have identified it as, quote, us or ourselves, I've tried to think what it really is. And the only conclusion I can come is perhaps it is the fact that our uh, being uh, operates on a level of of uh, considering factors in such an immense uh, uh, numbers, in such so many factors, both uh, if what was true that the, the emotion is in fact nothing more but than the way we identify certain bodily responses and that we call that fear or we call that happiness or we call that uh, love, that, that perhaps then our consciousness is tied into the fact that our brain is capable of a rate of, of computation so beyond if you took every supercomputer on Earth and had them work for 10,000 years that that would not equal what the human mind can do in just 10 minutes or in one minute. Thank you for listening to Commentary. If you like the show, tell your friends. We think there's a lot to be learned from these recordings. Home video commentaries are insightful works that are becoming less and less accessible to viewers and should be preserved and shared. Commentary collects and presents classic and contemporary DVD commentaries in podcast form, so you can listen to them wherever and whenever you want. This podcast was created as a public service for educational purposes and is not monetized. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you.